Welcome to In Your Area. On today's episode, we welcome Ellen Mendham of Remax Realty Professionals, and we are happy to introduce our new area provincial practice advisor, Brian Statt. Ellen and Brian chat about why a holdback is preferred over other options, such as a price adjustment or cashback. They dig into the details of how much to hold back, as well as review the wording of terms and concerns around fraudulent activity. They also chat about the current views of mortgage lenders regarding holdbacks and consider a lawyer's ability to enforce them. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. It's Ellen Mandum from AREA. I'm chair of the Professional Development Committee here at AREA. I'd like to introduce Brian Statt, who's our provincial practice advisor. And today we're going to talk about holdbacks. Brian? Yeah, thank you, Ellen. It's uh, it's exciting to be here. I know that holdback terms are not necessarily the top of everybody's entertainment list, but I think it's super important to know about them and at least have a framework on, on how to handle them because they're so integral to the business. Great. How about we start with some questions that uh, I think our audience will be interested in. Why is a holdback necessary instead of a price adjustment or a cashback? Well, it, it's interesting that you bring it up in such a way because uh, cashbacks, I, I think most of our members understand now that the lender will not generally accept a cashback in a contract any longer. And the reason for that, of course, is because the cash uh, back system is unrestricted. So if the cash comes back to the buyer, I, they could go out and buy a new motorcycle or something like that, rather than doing repairs to the property that they should have. So that's kind of off the table now. That's It's very uncommon to see a cashback. And if you notice one in a purchase contract, you should probably question it because it's not something that's very normal. As far as a price adjustment goes, that is actually not a bad system. Uh, in fact, certainly a lot easier to get through the lending environment when you just simply do a price adjustment for the sake of some sort of a defect. The issue that comes with that, however, is that a price adjustment doesn't free up capital for the buyer to be able to actually do the work after they take possession. So if there's, say, a, a damaged dishwasher, for example, that needs replacement, well, if you do a $1,000 cashback, that's great. You're getting credit for the broken dishwasher. However, the buyer does not necessarily have the money after closing to go and buy their own dishwasher and have it installed. So that's where a price adjustment fails. And we need to free up that capital from the equity in order to make sure that that, that gets done. So that's where the holdback term comes in. What are the key components of an enforceable holdback term? Another great question. And we see so many times where um, somebody will just scratch into a purchase contract, say, you know, to use the dishwasher example, the seller will replace the dishwasher before closing. And that it seems on its face like that should be functional in a purchase contract. Unfortunately, it doesn't give the protections that are necessary for the parties, but also it doesn't give the tools in the toolbox for the lawyer to be able to, you know, hold that money if necessary or or do anything at the end of the transaction if those, those terms aren't in the contract. So the key that you want to sort of remember and even just make it a little bit of a game, I like to try and remember W5H. So we all know about W5H, that's who, what, when, where, why, and how. Uh, we learned that all the way back in elementary school. However, I've switched out one of the W's. So I I consider it who, what, when, where, whoops, and how. Um, because we already know the why. We we understand the why when we're writing a holdback term. So those are the those are the key components that I like to consider. Also, how much should someone hold back and how do we figure this out? 
Yeah, a, another great question. So the amount that you should hold back in a purchase contract really should represent what it's going to cost in order to to do the repair professionally. So with the working assumption that nothing will be done by the time closing happens, for example, going back to the dishwasher example, if you had anticipated that the seller is supposed to replace the dishwasher and you come to the end of closing day, nothing has been done. There's been no receipts provided saying that anything has been done. You want to make sure that there's enough money left over there to allow the buyer to go out, buy the dishwasher, hire somebody and have it installed. That leaves sufficient motivation for the seller to get it done prior to closing. And it gives sufficient protections for the purchaser as well to ensure that they are able to get it done without too many too many hassles. And that again comes back to the really important part about wording that term so carefully. When we go back to the W5H, you have to remember who will do the work. That's very crucial. And, and both parties sort of have to agree on that. What specifics are actually going to be need to be done in the case of, of this particular problem you're trying to address? When does the work need to be done? There have to be some some time criteria and constraints around what is supposed to happen. Where will the money be held in trust? Super, super important because it's not always the same place. And when I talk about the whoops, that's what happens when the money, when the, when the thing that's supposed to be done doesn't get done. How does that money flow back to the buyer? Are there any criteria around that? Is there, if partial work is done, does partial money go back? Those are things you really have to think about. And of course, how? you know, how will the parties determine what qualifies completion? That's a big question. If it's supposed to be a certain kind of dishwasher installed by a certain professional and that doesn't get done, does that meet the criteria for that, that holdback term? All of those things are super important when you're, when you're thinking through a holdback term. Thanks, Brian. Brian, recently I had a personal experience where I had to basically rewrite a holdback term because the lender wanted certain things spelled out very, very specifically. What have you found that the lenders are looking for and how should our members find out what, how they should write this? Perhaps they could be calling their mortgage broker, the lawyer. What's their best method of determining how to get this through? So not only is their buyer happy, but is the mortgage lender happy so this whole deal goes together? Oh, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Ellen, because that, you know, that is something that's so crucial to understand. Lending environment is a big part of our business, and, and most of our purchasers are going to need a lender to step in in order to provide the financing. We have seen in recent uh, years where the lenders have set sort of some thresholds about how much a holdback can be before they start to, you know, question whether or not that amount of money should go back to the buyer. And there's various reasons for that. However, you know, if you're considering a holdback that is super large or, or important to the, the property's use, and I'll use a specific example, let's say a, a septic field has failed in a, on an acreage property, that can cost $25,000, $35,000 or more. And if that is going to be required to be replaced as part of the purchase. And just to, just to frame the context a little bit, the seller may not have that free capital to do it prior to closing. They may need to free up the equity of the property at closing in order to pay for that, that disbursement. So how, what, how would you frame such a thing in a way that, you know, if it doesn't get done, 
that the buyer doesn't get all that money and then go on a worldwide cruise. That's what that's the kind of thing that keeps lenders awake at night. Essentially, the lender's idea of real estate lending is to lend on real property. So they don't lend on other things. So what the lender wants to know in those types of situations is that the property that they're lending on is serviceable. And once they know that that property is going to be serviceable, once the defect is remedied, they want to know that that service provider is going to be paid. So oftentimes, and like you had mentioned, oftentimes you may want to check with the mortgage broker or the, the mortgage lender or even, you know, potentially run the, the wording by your broker or, or a lawyer to just discuss how you would have that wording where the money would flow back to the service provider. And I'll just give you a quick example. In our scenario for the septic field replacement, uh, you may have to go out and, and with your buyer get a written quote from a qualified service provider for replacing that septic field. Once that written quote is provided, you could check with the lender, make sure that they're okay with that whole situation where it's going to be replaced by way of holdback. And then you may have to word in that holdback term where the, the amount of money to cover that replacement of the septic field will be either paid out directly upon completion to the third-party provider, or you can also have it paid into a buyer's, uh, trust, a buyer's lawyer's trust account who will then undertake to disperse those funds once the work has been completed. That provides sufficient protection for the lender and they will generally allow that type of a holdback to, to go through. So it's a solution to a problem that a lot of buyers may just, you know, cup their face in their hands and walk away and trying to find another property. And that's where you as a professional can step in and say, I think I've got a solution for this. Yep. In my personal experience, the lender wanted us to specifically have the buyer's lawyer hold back that money, but we also had to send in the written quotes and the funds had to go from the buyer's lawyer to the contractor who was doing the work. And again, the seller also had to agree to use that contractor. Right. So I think our members should be aware when they're writing this up, it's really quite complicated. You have to get every party to agree to the holdback and to who's doing the work and get the quote. So uh, in my case, we had to extend, I think, three times to get this together. So be aware out there that it's going to make writing your conditions a little more complicated. But guess what? You can do it. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things that if you just have clear guidance in your mind about what types of things have to go into that holdback term to really make it enforceable and protecting for your purchaser, then that'll that'll take you a long way to, to solving some of these problems. Hey, Brian, the other thing that I wanted to ask about is about the lawyers involved and their ability to enforce a holdback. What should we be doing to make sure that it all works? Yeah, it's, again, it comes back to those really crucial points, the who, what, when, where, whoops, and how. Uh, <laughs> because if if you have all of those key components, you really are handing the the tools and the levers that are required by the legal community in order to enforce those those holdbacks. Obviously, a purchase contract, we all know, is, is a contract formed in common law between the buyer and the seller. So both the buyer and the seller have to agree to all of those different components. Once they've done that, 
essentially the lawyers just follow, you know, robotically, they follow through that, that hold back term. So if you framed it really well, then you, your lawyer will love you because they have all of the right stuff that they need in order to ensure that it, it's accomplished the way that the buyer and seller have agreed. Great. What happens if in fact the problem is resolved and you still have that hold back in the offer, but they've already fixed the septic field, they've already fixed, say we get a, a very wealthy seller who has the cash to fix the problem. What happens then? Well, that and that's great. It's something really to remember. Holdbacks can be scary for the seller because they think, oh my goodness, we've already negotiated a price that's lower than what we wanted because every seller always thinks that. <laughs> and And then they say, oh, and on top of it now, they've come back after inspection and they want another $10,000 in holdback. And in their mind, they see that almost as a price reduction, like they're losing another $10,000, $20,000, $30,000. But that's not actually the case. If they accomplish in a well-worded holdback term, if they accomplish the things that the buyer and seller have agreed that they'll accomplish, then there is no holdback. There, there's no reason for the lawyer to, to accomplish uh, that holdback term at closing because it's already been done. So that money does not have to be held back and then redispersed. It just is never held back in the first place if they've already done the things they're supposed to. So if they're if they're acting well, then all parties will be happy and the seller does not have to have any money held out of the out of the proceeds. So as either one of the agents working on such a transaction finds out that, you know, the holdback issue is uh, no longer pertinent, their best method of letting the lawyers know this would be perhaps to get receipts, etc. Uh, how would they handle that? Yeah, I mean, oftentimes, you know, if it's if you're looking at repairs, replacements, things like that, receipts are a good way to accomplish that. Now, not everything is always done by professionals. Sometimes there's a there's a laundry list of, you know, sort of odds and sods that need to be accomplished from the homes home inspection that the seller has agreed to do. They're quite handy and the and the buyer has agreed that that would be fine. Sometimes there is no receipt. Sometimes it's, you know, perhaps photographs are the are the evidence of the completion of those things. But you really do want to make sure that there is some evidence of completion written into the holdback. What is going to satisfy the buyer that those things have been accomplished and and they have to be agreed to between the buyer and the seller? And it, it doesn't always have to be so egregious as all of these different criteria have to be met. Sometimes it's quite simple as, you know, the seller will provide photographs that the lighting in the kitchen works or whatever the case may be. So so and and that oftentimes will solve a lot of the problems if you're just thinking through those things. What is the evidence? Because if there is no evidence, if you don't agree to what the evidence is, sometimes what the buyer thought was going to suffice at the time when they were making that agreement, by the time they get to closing, they might not think it, it's it's enough anymore. So being really clear between the parties and transparent in the in the terminology is very helpful. And again, your broker can help you out with that. A lot of the time, they'll walk you through. They've got a lot of experience in that type of thing. Super. Anything else that you think we should be aware of? Just maybe one small thing. It's not really a small thing. <laughs> it, it really comes down to the idea that if you're writing a, a holdback term into a contract, you want to obviously make sure both buyer and seller agree to everything because otherwise it wouldn't be legally binding. But you want to make sure that they're acting in good faith. There, there has been a... I want, I want to say maybe a groundswell of uh, lenders 
who are saying, we think that holdbacks can become uh, a fraudulent venue for moving money through a transaction. Now that causes us, you know, problems on a number of different issues. Number one, FinTrack, the, you know, financial uh, money laundering and terrorist financing situation in Canada would be very interested to know if money was moving through a transaction and, and was not moving properly. But secondly, you should know as a real estate professional that if you're if you're doing anything that would, you know, constitute mortgage fraud, doing something outside of a properly worded and transparent holdback term, then mortgage fraud not only voids your real estate insurance exchange policy, so you wouldn't be protected in that case, but you also open yourself up to criminal prosecution. So these are the types of things that you should really be aware of when you're working through a holdback term. You want to make sure that the parties are acting in good faith. They are really wanting to accomplish the things that they're discussing and they want to get through to the end, to the to the final situation of a good, clean closing. Everything's accomplished and everybody's happy. That's ultimately what we all want as professionals. And, you know, to the to to any bad actors out there who are who are considering using a creative holdback term in order to uh, move money through a transaction, I would warn you against such a thing. It will catch up with you. You don't want to do that. So, Great. Thanks, Brian. For our members' use, will you be putting some of this material on the area website so that they can, perhaps we could add some holdback terms with some more information as you've disclosed today? Yeah, actually, I'm I'm proud to say that here at Area we're working on a practice blog. We're calling it Practically Speaking, and there's going to be a number of different articles similar to this that'll be posted on a on a regular basis, uh, probably weekly. That will just be enough to get you through the day and help you, you know, increase your your practice skill, learn things that you might not have learned before, think about things you might have not have thought of before, and. And that's something that will be coming to the area website shortly. It's albertarealtor.ca. And you'll also see it on different social media venues. But further to your point, Alan, this specific thing I will be writing an article on and publishing on holdback terms, just so you actually have a little bit more specific verbiage around how to really put that W5H to work for you. Who, what, when, where, whoops, and how. I love the whoops. Thank you very much, Brian. (laughs) You're welcome. And thank you for your time, Ellen. Appreciate that. Thank you to Ellen and Brian. We look forward to seeing you the next time we are in your area. 